Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation, Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I want to thank you for taking time to be with us today as we provide useful information and insights to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations get more, better broadband everywhere it needs to be in the U.S. The news has been incredible these past couple of days. We have been talking about uh, battles in several state legislatures to kill broadband competition. Comcast uh, announced today, formally, uh, that they are chasing after Time Warner, which would make just a megalopolis of a monopoly. And all of it really comes down to the question of um, will we or will we not have broadband competition in the U.S. in any meaningful way? Uh, one of the bastions of, of competition that uh, is, is doing well are the community networks that have uh, sprung up in some 300 or so uh, places in the U.S., and they are growing. And uh, one in particular, uh, Utopia in Utah, has been uh, the recent center of a anti-competitive move by CenturyLink, of all folks, um, in, in Utah, who are trying to kill uh, Utopia with a rather interestingly devised bill that uh, we're going to talk about today. And, and the efforts to kill that bill, the same way that we have talked about killing the uh, anti-competition bill that's in the state of Kansas, uh, with me today um, is someone who has uh, been following uh, all of the developments with broadband in Utah, uh, Jesse Harris, who's a senior editor of Free Utopia, uh, the blog newsletter, Voice of Broadband in the State of Utah. Jesse, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So let's jump right in here. Let's talk about... The bill, House Bill 60, what it does and why it's important that folks uh, rise up and speak out and, and put their foot down that they're tired of having these kinds of bills enter into the legislatures. What HB 60 does is it prevents Utopia from building outside of member cities. Um, what Utopia is is an interlocal agency, meaning that it is a city agency, but it covers more than one municipality at once. Um, it would be the same thing as if you had a metropolitan police department that provided service to multiple cities. Um, by preventing them from building outside of member cities, they're, gonna, they're cutting off one of Utopia's biggest successes, which has been hooking up businesses who are near the network but not in a member city that really want service. Right now, businesses who are not in a Utopia city can go to Utopia and say, hey, I really want to get your service. What's it going to take to get it here? Utopia will come back with a quote, which is more often than not far below what any incumbent provider charges. And they say, great, here's a check. Give us the service. Uh, this bill would prevent that. It could also prevent hooking up any new service providers if they don't have a presence within a member city. Interesting. So this, similar to the Kansas bill, goes beyond trying to prevent the cities from having a network, and this basically goes toward preventing businesses from being able to buy 
a service from wherever they want to buy a service from. Yeah, it's it's pretty bad. Uh, I've I've talked to people who are not fans of Utopia who take a look at it and say, "Wow, I can't believe there's a bill that would tell a private company you can't spend your money with someone unless the city gives their okay." Wow. What's interesting is that if you look at it, the argument from all of the you know conservative free market folks is that you need to let government get out of the way so the private sector can do its thing. And in this particular case, you're basically saying we're going to put government squarely in the way, both at the state level and by default at the local level, so that they will actually prevent the private sector from doing what it wants to do or needs to do as it pertains to communication. Yeah, it's very bizarre um, because Utopia doesn't operate with any sort of special advantage compared to CenturyLink. Um, They're just offering much better terms. They're saying, hey, we'll do the installation at cost, which CenturyLink will not do. And by the way, we've got a dozen service providers that are competing, and that helps keep the prices nice and low. Mm -hmm. Right, because it's an open access network, right? Yeah, and so... There, there are over a dozen service providers on right now. With that kind of service choice, that's kept you know, the prices nice and low. Providers have found a lot of ways to differentiate themselves. Uh, X-Mission gets some really great peering agreements with Netflix and with Valve um, so that Steam games download quickly. Sumo Fiber does their voice communication. Um, they have an option to do voice communication using Google Voice and Obitalk adapters, which is really cheap and provides unlimited use grades. Um, you know, Veracity has a call switching network that can provide the lowest rate possible for someone who's doing high volume in you know, the tens or hundreds of thousands of minutes. Um, and so when, you, when it equalizes out, you find providers that are coming in and finding ways to entice you other than saying, hey, look at our price. Mm-hmm. And then that's pretty much been the strength. I mean, if you're following these community networks in other cities and other states, the value that they bring is not by um, competing on price, though price becomes a factor, but they generally compete on, you know, the fact that you can call a service rep and the service rep probably lives around the corner. You can uh, get more uh, attentiveness from the company because the company is part of the local economy. And the money that, that is generated by a community network, whether it's a public-private partnership or it's you know, ISPs that have been enabled by an open access uh, network, the value that, that they offer is, you know, is the choice and is competitive environment and different services. And all of those things together creates the competitive challenge that the incumbents fear. It does. Um, you know, you look at the, at the companies that are on the network, and most of them are based here in Utah. Um, you've got Beehive Broadband, which has, um, you know, they've built some of their own fiber systems in rural areas. Brigham.net is also a provider of IT services in Brigham City. X-Mission is Salt Lake City's first and oldest ISP, founded in 1993, before most people even had any clue what the Internet was. Uh, you've got these companies who have very, very deep local roots, 
and you've got a throttle factor there. If, you, if they really make you mad, you can go to their office, and you might actually catch the president or CEO of the company. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and what I have found in talking with other communities is that um, they are able, these networks are able to withstand the full force and effect of uh, the large incumbents' uh, predatory practices, their big marketing budgets, and so forth, they're able to withstand that on the strength of, you know, those factors. I mean, has, has, has Comcast is the, is the major incumbent in, in Utah, right? Yeah, you've got Comcast on the cable side and CenturyLink on the phone side. Um, they, they pretty much dominate uh, everything in the Metro Salt Lake area. Um, CenturyLink is cash poor enough that they haven't been able to do much in the way of network upgrades, and so they've been slowly seeding away market um, to other providers because they just can't upgrade. The, the last time they bumped fiber to the node speeds in, Salt, in the Salt Lake area was probably a good four years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, now, how has, how has – well, actually, we should probably talk about how this bill came to be because uh, it has something of an interesting history in terms of who sponsored it and what has happened to this bill in just the last five days. Can you give us a little bit of the background? Yeah. Um, it's, right now, the bill's origins are unknown. Um, I do have a request in with uh, an act in Utah called GRAMA. It's an Open Records Act. It allows you to get any communications between a public employee or elected official and anyone they've talked to on a specific subject. Um, right now, if you look, if you just follow the money, you see that CenturyLink spends a lot of time throwing money around. They've they've been giving contributions to 85 of the current 104 members of the state legislature, uh, which is spreading themselves out quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily buying votes, but it certainly is buying access. And that's how the lobbying game is played, is lobbyists go up to the Hill, they, you know, get buddy-buddy with legislators, so that when they say, hey, we have an idea for a bill that we'd like to run, they're going to be much more open to it. Um, it's very hard to counter that, because as citizens, we're not paid to go up there and get chummy with legislators. We have day jobs, and the only time we ever speak to them if that happens, is if something pops up that's concerning to us. We don't have that same kind of relationship history that we can use to to get our voice in edgewise. And that's what I think got this bill even considered in the first place. Um, Mm -hmm. A piece of news that came out after the fact that made it pretty clear as to why CenturyLink would want to push this bill is that they are promoting a a fiber service of their own now, of gigabit service to certain business parks. Basically the exact same product as Utopia offers, but probably at a much higher cost. So it seems like what they're doing is saying, let's keep Utopia from expanding so that we don't have to do competitive bids in these places where we want to build fiber. Interesting. So that was a uh, kind of an interesting quid pro quo uh, set set of circumstances now, since the, the announcement of the bill, has Comcast been very active? Or have you, you know, who, who in public is actually pushing this bill? Is it just the legislators or have the, uh, you know, lobbyists slash, you know, front groups slash, you know, incumbents made public statements about this? 
There haven't been any statements of support that I've seen. That said, uh, I was outside of a previous planned committee hearing um, where it was taken off the agenda, and CenturyLink's top lobbyist in Utah was sitting outside the committee room. So Uh it was pretty obvious that he was there to make sure that this thing went through. Right. Okay. Now, the, the the interesting turn of events, though, that happened is that um, at one point yesterday the bill appeared to be dead, and then, like the zombie apocalypse, in the dead of night it came back to life. Um, any any speculation on you know what that means? Was that a you know a deliberate feint by the, uh, the 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 incumbents, or how do you read that? What Representative Webb has said that he's going was he's going to do was pull the bill back to make revisions. Um, right. As best I can tell, it doesn't look like the bill has been modified much, if any. Um, there may have been some modifications to grandfather in existing services a little bit better, but you know, grandfathering is just basically saying, "Hey, we're not going to do something actively to you." But you know, the meat of it is still. We're going to tell businesses who they can or cannot buy Internet from based on whether or not it's politically favorable. Right. Uh-huh. That's, that's a rough one. That's a rough one. Now, what has been done by the, you know, the grassroots uh, advocacy groups to, uh, to fight the bill? There have been a lot of people who have been writing to the members of the committee to urge them to vote against the bill. Uh, A number of people have also been contacting the bill sponsor directly to ask him to pull the bill. Uh, The bill sponsor was recently on a talk radio program with the founder of X-Mission, Pete Ashdown, and each time he tried to bring up a reason for the bill, Pete would immediately dismantle it. From what I understand, it was to the point of he had pretty much no justification for the bill being around anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, from from insider sources, what I'm hearing is that he kind of knows he's got a turkey, but he's trying to save face on it, and it seems to me like he's kind of bringing it before the committee with almost an expectation that's going to fail, just so he can say, well, I tried. Right. Well, let's talk to the bigger issue here. You know, The, the, the news today has been about Comcast buying Time Warner, which would pretty much, you know, in 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 many markets, destroy any semblance of uh, competition. I mean, basically, you would have at best a duopoly. Uh, I personally live in one of those, and and when your choices are Comcast and AT and T, this uh, does not make for a competitive market. What's your um, you know, take on the legislative aspect of things. Is this basically a kind of a, a, I don't know, a two-pronged attack? I mean, are we looking at, you know, the, the merger mania happening on the top end, and then in the trenches you have all of these kinds of bills? I mean, we saw the, the bill in Kansas that was introduced a couple of weeks ago uh, that would essentially, you know, kill the private sector's ability to build broadband networks you have this, which prevents private sector companies from buying from the vendor or ISP of their choice. You know, is this two-pronged attack? Is this a two-pronged attack in your mind? Um, and then how do, how do consumers, how do local businesses 
deal with this kind of um, aggravation. What the legislation is specifically is kind of a safety for them. Um, whenever these large companies consolidate, the service always seems to end up getting worse. Um, right. It's one of two reasons. Either they're cutting customer service because they think it's, du- it's you know, duplicative, or they you know, are focusing so much on these newly acquired areas that they neglect the other areas. And by coming in with legislation to try and limit competition, I mean, they want it anyway, but especially when service goes down the drain, that's when people get fed up enough and they say, you know what, the heck with this, I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. And if you limit the number of options they have, you know, you can call up and say, well, I'm, I'm going to leave, and they can laugh and go, yeah, to who? Right. And you so know, it's a particularly a bad situation because CenturyLink is the only alternative if you don't live in Provo with Google Fiber or in a utopia city, um, and they haven't upgraded speeds for something like four years, and they haven't been expanding their fiber to the node in about as much time. They are concentrating on the high-margin business services because that's the most bang for their buck, and they don't have very much of it. We don't really have a competitive market here in Utah. It's mm-hmm. you can get Comcast if you want to get the best performance, or you can go with CenturyLink if you want to try and save a few dollars. Or Comcast has really cheesed you off. Mm-hmm. That uh, so, so, in that respect, if you follow the logic then of that conclusion, <clears throat> then. Uh, community networks are probably, in some places, going to be the last bastion of competition uh, that's credible as far as you know what happens in the future. This is true. Um, in some cases, it's the only competition that's available. Uh, you'll end up, you know, being forced between the cable company that's only marginally better than the phone company that isn't upgrading their network. Um, and when you have an open access network particularly, your competitive choices are just, you know, amazing. You know, if you live where I do, I, I don't live in an area covered by Utopia. We've got, you know, Comcast and CenturyLink is the only wireline options. But if you live in an area with Utopia service, all of a sudden you have seven more providers available to you. And with that level of competition, it's very easy to just switch and say, you know what? This company has made me angry. I'm switching over to someone else. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, you know, while we're while we're having this discussion, you know, I'm following some of the the Twitter mayhem. And so, a Comcast VP has said, "We're certainly not promising that customer bills are going to go down or even increase less rapidly." I mean, that's pretty much blatant, you know blatantly exposing the obvious by their own vice presidents. I mean, how do you take a statement like that? I mean, what, what's, what's, your, what's your interpretation of that comment? There's no big enough threat for them to care. <laughs> I mean, if you don't <laughs> think that if you can treat your customers like absolute garbage and tell them to your face you're going to treat them like garbage, uh, you do that because you're confident that they've got nowhere else to go. Wow. Let's let's talk about the nowhere else to go thing for a little bit. Um, <clears throat> the Utah, the Utopia project has been one that has been uh, I don't know fraught with you know missteps, miscues, what have you. 
And, um, but despite that, the network has managed to survive all of its, I don't know, internal mayhem, if you will, and has, has now structured a deal that it's very similar to the Kansas City Google deal, but it almost ensures that there will be success with the Utopia project. And I don't think a lot of folks are even aware of this, so why don't we talk about uh, that particular relationship? What, what, is, what, is, what has happened to Utopia that has totally turned things around and points to a pretty bright future? What has turned things around, I think, is focusing on, is, is change in focus. When the initial build was done, the building was planned around where can we put in network most cheaply. Now, that seems like a great idea until you think about, but it doesn't focus on where are we going to get subscribers. It might be really cheap to build to an apartment complex, but if that apartment complex is all Section 8 housing that could never afford your service, you've wasted all your money. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what, what put Utopia in a pickle to begin with, was a combination of that bad build plan and 18 months where they had to make bond payments but couldn't build because of the incumbent providers suing them to block poll access. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what that's what tripped them up, and recovering from that is just you know a real bear. What's really turned things around is focusing on where can we get subscribers. Um, they've done things that <clears throat> Google has emulated, such as we find the pe- we find the customers and then we build the network. Right. That's how they did Brigham City. Is they came in and said, "We will build the entire city if we hit this participation rate, and everyone who participates is going to have some skin in the game. You're going to buy your connection, um, and buying your connection is kind of a a novel thing. You don't. No one ever thinks of that. They think, well, I pay this much per month, and that's just the service. And the best way to explain it is buying the connection is like going out and buying a car, and the service is the gas that you put in the car to make it go somewhere. Right. And the great thing about Buy Your Connection is not just that everyone has some skin in the game. It brings in financing, which is very hard to secure otherwise because telecom projects are considered high risk. And once you've paid that connection off, that money disappears. You, you may hear free installation from an incumbent provider. What they mean is we're not charging you a designated fee for installation we're going to make sure we tack on a bit of installation to every month's bill forever. Right, okay. And, you know, that kind of build plan of getting people with skin in the game is what I think really promoted the success of the network. Uh, They don't have to go out and seek additional financing. The financing comes from the users. Um, So they did get Brigham City hooked up um, very successfully. They did use some... um, ARRA funds to build out Centerville. They have private businesses coming to them with their own money and saying, "We'll give you ten. We'll give you thirty thousand dollars to hook us up because Quest wants ninety. Okay. And that I think has been the big success is they've identified the demand and built to the demand, and that's how they've been able to meet the financial targets. Mm-hmm. So the the net of this relationship, though, uh, as as you described it to me yesterday when we were talking is that um, uh, Gemini Cricket, I always have trouble, Macquarie uh, is the company. They have 
become, in essence, the Google Fiverr for the Utopia project, meaning they are a company with big dollars that have come in to build a network, uh, very much the same as Google has done, but the difference is that the network will the, the, the network for Utopia is truly open access because, uh, again, if people have been following, they may have noticed that though Google talked about having an open access network when the deal was first announced with Kansas City, no one talks about that anymore, and it pretty much seems like that's gone by the wayside. So in Utopia, they have guaranteed open access. They um, are, are getting the network built. It's being financed. But the network is going to go to every premise, both business and residential. And on top of that, in 30 years, the city will own the asset, <clears throat> unlike you know, the, the, the situation with Google, at least to the best of my recollection on the Google deal. Um, it, how significant yeah, is that? It's it's huge, and the difference of terms being made here. Um, you know, Google's pattern so far, and I can say this is a pattern because we've seen it three times now, is they go to municipalities, extract sweetheart terms, and then build the network. Um, you know, if we look at the deal that they did with Provo, um, they negotiated a contract length of seven years. They're going to have an investment of about $500 per address in the city. No revenue sharing, no open access. Um, they effectively got to get an indefinite lease on the network for one dollar plus eighteen million in closing costs, which is nothing. Um, then you look at the deal between Utopia and Macquarie. Of it's a thirty-year contract, a significantly longer commitment, with an investment of four times as much per address, almost two grand. There will be revenue sharing, so cities will be able to pay part of the bond payments. Provo has to pay all of its bonds by itself. You're still preserving open access, and at the end of the deal, the cities are going to keep the asset. They own it. Um, you know, you look at the, the stark difference between those two deals, and you find yourself wondering, how on earth did Provo get jobbed like that? How do you think they got jobbed? I mean, that, that to me was the most impressive deal of, like, I don't know, utter um, screwing over of your constituents I have seen in quite some time. I mean, that wasn't even like a minor league trashing of your constituency. You pretty much gave away, you gave away the asset and kept the debt. I mean, who does that and why? I mean, I know you know, the problem, in, this is a very long-standing problem in Provo, and you can trace it back to, when they brought Broadway in to take over the iProvo network. Um, it, the way Provo does business is it, it's a bad way. I, I don't know how the citizens put up with it. The mayor goes and negotiates a deal in private. They come back to the city council with this deal, which is a real sweetheart deal for the company that's going to take over, and say, hey, we've negotiated this deal. I need you to approve it. We need to do it. Snap, 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 because otherwise this is going to disappear and there's going to be ruin everywhere. And then they approved the deal, and there was ruin everywhere. Uh, Broadweave and the network into the ground um, ended up being acquired by Veracity, which is a great company, but Veracity is inheriting a distressed, comp a very, very distressed network of, you know, Broadweave created a horrible reputation, and they found themselves at a point where 
they would literally try to give away service to people who had been previously connected, and they couldn't. They would offer a free month of service to anyone who had been previously connected and had disconnected, and they could not get people to take that deal because of the bad reputation that had been following around. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that the network got to a point where it had such a bad reputation from, you know, this one bad deal where they closed the network and gave it to someone who was completely inept at running it that they just wanted to run from it. And that's been the pattern all the time is when the going gets tough, they don't say, how do we make this work? They say, how do we make this someone else's problem? <laughs> Jeez. So that's... Yeah, so that's it, was, yeah. it was particularly bad because a few months before they announced Broadweave was going to take over, they had been in discussions with a few other local service providers to come on the network, including X-Mission. And I can just about guarantee if X-Mission had come on the network, they would have added enough users to cover the bond payments. Huh. Wow. That's um, <clears throat> that's an amazing development. By the way, where did Macquarie come from? Because, uh, like I said, this is probably one of the best-kept secrets <laughs> Uh, in, in the country, because I don't know if anybody even, like I said, most people even know that such a deal exists. And, Mar- and Macquarie is a is an Australian company. On top of that, and uh, where did where did this come out? Totally out of left field, or how did how did this all kind of evolve? Honestly, I don't know how this talks with Macquarie got started, uh, but they are a huge company. Uh, they have assets of 140 billion U.S. Um, you know, which makes them uh, just ginormous. Uh, you know, dropping three hundred million on this on the Utopia project is nothing to them. Mm-hmm. And they have a very long history of um, of doing public works projects, things like you know bridges and sewer and water, things that are going to be around for decades. And they don't have you know huge returns on investment, but they're very solid and stable. Um, you know, and for an investment banking company, having a lot of solid and stable assets is a great thing. Mm-hmm. So now, if I were to um, <clears throat> get on my ideal world uh, cap, uh, in the ideal world, would not the the best thing that could happen is one. Utopia becomes successful because of the deal with uh, Macquarie. It expands the network, you know, all across the state, really, because there are no real boundaries yet. Um, And then takes this, packages thing up, and starts carrying it to other other states. I mean, that that would be, to me, my version of broadband heaven. Is that a... I guess first, you know, is that a realistic scenario? But uh, what would be the, you know, in practical terms, the impact of such a development? I think it's entirely possible. Um, I haven't heard anything specific about plans to go beyond member cities. Mm-hmm. Um, the build plan is obviously going to be they have to contractually complete all of the pledging member cities first, the ones that have money on the line. Right. Uh, the non-pledging cities are ones that have just granted free right-of-way, they're probably going to exercise that because most of them are pretty close to the backbone, and hey, why wouldn't you? Um, I would have no doubt that once they finish and people see, hey, this thing is working, that more cities are going to come in and say, hey, 
what do we have to do to get this in our in our area? Um, it's very likely that they will complete building out any almost every city along the backbone, and that backbone reaches very far. This is not just a Utah thing. The backbone starts in Las Vegas, runs up I-15, and then goes across I-86 to Portland. Um, it it reaches very far. So Macquarie could say, hey, we really need to leverage this backbone that goes all over the place. They could start lighting up cities all over the West um, with very little effort using existing assets. And once the network gets big enough, they may decide, hey, let's start pushing this national. Macquarie may be doing what Google Fiber originally promised to do. Mm-hmm. That would be – by the way, do you know what, what their primary business is, Macquarie? I should look them up at some point, but I haven't had, uh, haven't had time. They are primarily an investment bank. Okay. No harm in that, I guess. So they bring a whole lot of money to the table. <laughs> okay. That, that's a good thing. And they seem to have, from what I understand, I talked to someone yesterday, actually. Uh, I did do some research on them. So I was talking to someone about them yesterday and said, you know, they have as a corporate philosophy something of a um, something of a public good I mean, they're, they, they're making money, obviously, and they make sound investments, but they have an eye toward the public good, which would, you know, dovetail nicely with the philosophy of community broadband. You know, it's, yes, it's a business. Yes, we want to make money back. But, hey, you know, we also consider it valuable to address issues of the, the public good, which I and see. And I, I think that this true public-private partnership only underscores that. Um, Google paid a lot of lip service to public-private partnerships and they were talking open access, but really what it's looking like is give us a bunch of public benefit and we'll, we'll, we'll build this network and that'll you know, maybe create some public benefit back to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and Macquarie seems to be much more even-handed of, hey, we'll share in the sacrifice here and we're doing this for you. Hmm. Now, let's bring this back then to the discussion of um, the, the, the Comcast-Time Warner merger. Um, could this, again, blue skying here for the moment, could this be the antidote for the duopoly world that we would be locked into if this merger uh, is approved? It absolutely would. Um, when you look at how these how these incumbents operate, is they look at new networks that come in with a little bit of disdain and say, "We'll bury you. Just give us a few years of promotional pricing." Um, and then by the time they realize that they're in serious trouble, it's too late. You look at Pro. You look at Provo. Um, they com- were completely dismissive of iProvo as being a threat. And now, you know, they're turning on 250 megabit service, which is the highest that their equipment could possibly go, and realizing, wow, in a few months, we hit the structural limits of HFC, we are screwed. And they find themselves going, well, this is just 35,000 homes, and we have millions of homes in our market. We can afford to write it off. Mm -hmm. But there's going to come a point that if these, if open access networks spread over much wider swaths of service, 
they're going to have to confront the fact that they have to upgrade. They're going to have to go fiber, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they're going to find themselves in a situation of, well, how on earth are we going to differentiate ourselves against these guys? If Macquarie finishes the build-out between them and Google, you're looking at about 20% of total households having access to gigabit fiber at dirt-cheap prices. That can't be good for Comcast and CenturyLink's bottom line. Mm-hmm. And if they expand it even further, well, that just sends them into a further death spiral. And for the most part, Macquarie can operate, um, you know, fairly freely in, in this situation here. I mean, they're, uh, with the exception of these anti-municipal network bills, bills, uh, bills that are, you know, in the various legislatures, um, it's a fairly open path. I mean, if you look at it and say, well, you know, if if they take this thing national, every city in America that, you know, can understand the value of broadband can potentially be a player, right? There's no real impediments to that. It seems like. Well, and it also also creates, a a great prisoner's dilemma, too, of if you have a municipal area, uh, you know, a a metro area, and one municipality says, yeah, okay, come build here, well, all of the other municipalities are suddenly at a huge disadvantage, and they are faced with the, you know, unfortunate dilemma of, well, we either have to get on board with this or this is going to kill us. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and that kind of pressure is, I think, what's going to really push it forward, is that's all you need. You just need one municipality that's doing something like this, you know, that takes a deal like Macquarie's offering, and the rest of them are more or less compelled to get on board. Otherwise, people are going to move out of the city. Businesses are going to move out of the city. It's going to become a ghost town. Interesting, indeed. Now, <clears throat> I know, you know, you're... Uh, I'm not sure how much expertise you have on uh, Macquarie, but um, would it be possible in those states that have anti-muni network bills on the book, like you look at North Carolina and Texas and all these places, um, could Macquarie create the same kind of, I don't know, network system structure, whatever, if the city were to put up a, you know, a nonprofit entity or a consortium of local business folks to create, um, you know, an entity with which Marquari could deal, because Marquari is the owner and builder of the physical infrastructure. I mean, I, I know they work with contractors or subcontractors or what have you, but they are basically, you know, the entity that owns this thing. And they're owning it, in essence, on behalf and at the behest of the communities, all those member communities in Utopia. But if Utopia, you know, if there wasn't a Utopia, but there had been, say, um, like EC Fiber in Vermont, which is a collection, which is a co-op, I'm sorry, which is a national, take two, which is a nonprofit organization which has members from 23 communities in, uh, in Vermont, and they have created the nonprofit to function as the R, you know, the entity that brings broadband to their state. 
right? Could they, in essence, create a relationship with a company like um, Macquarie, which would then, in a state like North Carolina, work around the restriction? They can. Um, what they would have to do, essentially, and this is to avoid um, not complaining from incumbents, because they'll complain no matter what you do, yes, but to will. avoid any potential legal trouble, a city council could say, if you are building a gigabit fiber infrastructure to every address in the city, we will waive all of the right-of-way requirements, which... It's kind of a, it's a great way to thumb your nose at the incumbent because you're saying if you do this you can get the same deal. We know you're not going to. And, and then they effectively get, they get it sees it as a private entity, but they're they're still getting the benefit of a gigabit fiber system. Right. This opens up an incredible um, number of possibilities. I mean, I'm I'm just blue skying, and like I said, it's only been the last 24 hours. I've even had time to think about this, but. Um, you know, as I look at the, the you know, the, the lay of the land, you know, this seems to be very viable. Now, the one thing, though, that uh, maybe somebody should point out is that if you look at the Kansas bill and you look at the bill in Utah, what it seems like is that the incumbents have come to the realization that, um, yes, you can prevent a municipality from uh, getting into the broadband business. And you get that whole, you know, public versus private sector nonsense going around. But, but that's your lever, and you use it, and you're successful with that. But what Google has demonstrated <clears throat> is that there can be a private sector alternative for the, you know, the municipality owning the network to where you have a public-private partnership. And whereas Google is a, you know, you might call it a pseudo-public-private partnership, in the case of uh, Macquarie, it is a true uh, public-private partnership. And so that is the, the realization that that is a possibility to me, is what has driven these last two bills, right? Because, I mean, by political philosophy and temperament and all the rest of it, you know, attacking private sector companies or the involvement of private sector companies has been uh, anathema to, uh, you know, to conservative, um, you know, ideology, Right, you, you know, it's all about the free market. It's all about you know pro business and the private sector taking a role. So basically, the 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 legislators are going against their political philosophy because it's the only way they can now, or their that incumbents, you know, the people paying writing their campaign contributions, it's the only way the incumbents can see going against the other threat, the non municipal threat. Does that you know? Does that resonate? Am I off base with that, or what do you what do you think? With the the thing that's really ironic with any of the bills that they really push is that they benefited from all kinds of special privilege. Um, right. You know, for in many municipalities, cable companies have a legal monopoly on right of way when it comes to television services. 
Uh, same thing with phone companies. They have had legal monopolies on right-of-way for their phone systems. And they have used these decades of special privilege to deeply, deeply entrench themselves. And now when someone comes in and says, hey, you know, you got these benefits, it's time to let someone else have a cut of that action, they start screaming, special treatment, special treatment, with absolutely no sense of irony. <laughs> and it's it's a pattern you see play out, not just in telecom, but in many other sectors of their lips say capitalism, but their actions say cronyism over right. and over and over again. They want to have the special favors because they know that if they have that political privilege, the money's just going to keep on flowing. Right. And you look at the and, history of every state, you know, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, uh, you know, there were massive, you know, government gifts, you know, from state government and so forth. How Comcast, you know, headquarters office is being, you know, paid for by the citizens of, of Philadelphia. I mean, their position, their market position is possible by virtue of government assistance, you know, corporate welfare, if you will. And now they're turning around trying to take this moral high ground of, you know, the, 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 the public sector. The government can't be involved in this and, oh, protect us from unfair competition by the government. It's, uh, it's a bit sad, actually. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it, if it weren't so disgusting, it would be funny to watch. <laughs> yep. It is, it is what it is. So what's next? What you know, is... You know, in in uh, well, just starting with Utah. You know, what's what are the next steps? I mean, you have this hearing tomorrow. Uh, you know, you and I have discussed offline. You know, what is the likelihood this bill will pass, and so forth and so on. What's the scenario? First, if um, you know the bill actually passes tomorrow and then goes on, and then we can kind of come back and talk about you know the likelihood of that happening. But but first, if it were to, if it were to um, make it out of committee tomorrow, what are the next legislative steps? If it makes it out of committee, it would then go to the House calendar to go for a vote for the entirety of the House. Um, it is much harder to kill a bill when it gets to that point um, because you have to persuade 75 members of the House as opposed to the nine members of that one committee. Right. Um, if it passes the House, it then goes to the Senate um, the Senate has to vote on it twice. Uh, it's a strange system that we have. It's added to what's called the second reading calendar, where they vote on essentially saying, should we take a final vote on it? And then they take the, it goes to the third reading calendar, where they take a final vote on it. Uh, the Senate is usually a little easier to persuade. There's only 29 members of the Senate. The Senate is a much more careful and deliberative body. They you know, are, they scrutinize bills a lot more closely than the House does. Um, I honestly see that it's going to have a hard time getting out of committee because there's not going to be many people speaking in favor of it. Okay. Um, how certain are you of that? <laughs> Devil's advocate in the ass. I'm, I'm putting about a 70 to 75% certainty on that. Uh, okay. Knowing the members of the committee, I would say about three to four of the nine members are probably pretty solid no's. 
And so okay. if you only have to convince one or two more members of the committee that this bill is bad and it should be rejected, you know, that's that's not a lot of convincing you have to do. Mm-hmm. Now, is there a, um, in addition to the public comments, do the committee members get to debate with each other? Yes, they do. Uh, they okay. The way that it works is that the bill sponsor will present the bill and provide an explanation. They will ask questions of the bill sponsor, um, sometimes playing off of each other's questions. At that point, it is then opened up to public comments. Um, once the public comment is complete, they then go on to open discussion of the bill, uh, where they will, you know, each state their piece of you know, what they think the merits or demerits of the bill are, at which point they take a final vote. Okay. So the opportunities for the public to um, go after this bill, number one, are in the public comments uh, portion of tomorrow's meeting. By the way, is 8 o'clock in the morning on 24 hours notice the norm? I mean, is that when they, how these things typically happen? Utah public meeting laws, you have to have at least 24-hour notice. Um, okay. And the, the, thankfully, the legislature has a pretty good site that you can subscribe to email notifications whenever changes have been made. Um, mm-hmm. The notification of the meeting agenda went out last night about 8.30-ish, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's you know, not much time, but if you kind of have, if you're watching it closely and you know what committee it's going to be going through, you can kind of sort of plan to be there, mm-hmm. but it does make it harder for some members of the public to engage because you have to be able to drop everything on a couple days' notice and, and get up there. Now, I have, in, in other battles, you know, when the, the North Carolina legislators were, you know, we were battling back and forth with them in Georgia and so forth, it seems like this timing issue of, you know, when you make announcements of meetings, and when you, you know, announce location and, and, uh, of these meetings became part of the strategy of fighting the public. I mean, you know, let's call it what it is. It's basically, you know, there, 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 was, there were concerted efforts to kill as much public comment as possible. Now, the North Carolina folks, even though after four years uh, it finally, you know, lost and the anti-muni folks won, but um, they got good at rapid response. You know, the, the, basically there was a network or an informal network centered by a blog that allowed folks to quickly get information, and people were pretty much revved up to go to the state house. I mean, obviously not from all you know all the way across the state, but there was a body of folks, and so they were able with this rapid response effort, you know, were able to 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 get on, stay on the ball. Um, is something like that difficult to do? I mean, I don't know much about the, the, the dynamics of Utah, um, and it's not a place like Pennsylvania where when their battle started, you know, you had Philadelphia, and it was like only two hours from uh, Harrisburg, the state capital, and they could rally and unload a whole bunch of people and turn those folks loose in, in the state house. Um, does, does Utah have that kind of dynamic or, you know, geographical predisposition or whatever to that kind of a rapid response activity? It can because the vast majority of the state's population lives within an hour of the Capitol building. Uh, The Capitol is in downtown Salt Lake City. Um, You know, populated areas are basically stretching from Ogden to Provo, 
uh, which is about an hour in either direction. So it does make it pretty easy to be able to <clears throat> get people to show up if it's something that they feel very strongly about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's that's extremely helpful. Um, there's a, you know, you can take, if you don't want to drive it, there are trains that you can take from, you know, Provo to Ogden down to Salt Lake. You can hop a bus, take you straight up to the Capitol. Um, you know, so it makes it very easy to get up there and say something. Um, you know, you can email legislators directly. And because we're a relatively small state, legislators have roughly, you know, thirty-five to 40,000 constituents apiece uh, for the House. That makes it so that, you know, if a few hundred people are emailing, well, that, that looks like a lot of response to them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we... There are a lot of communities that you can tap to push these kinds of things. Um, Never underestimate the value of Reddit. Uh, Once I started getting these things out on Reddit, I saw, you know, a lot of people starting to respond and and start emailing the bill sponsor and the committee members to tell them, hey, I don't want this. Um, and, And that makes a huge difference. You can use social media like Facebook and Twitter to get the word out there. Uh, that these mm-hmm. things are happening. And, you know, Utah is a very tech-friendly area, and <laughs> quite honestly, people are tired of broadband sucking. And mm. if you do something that looks like it's going to make it worse, that's going to make people react badly. Interesting. Now, is there a, is there a central, I don't know, URL? Is there a blog? Is there a Reddit? I, don't, I actually have to confess up. I don't use Reddit. But um, is there a, a spot or, or some way that, that people can be directed to Reddit to then be directed to the legislature? Because, I mean, 24 hours, we still have some time to make some impact here. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been, I've been writing about it at freeutopia.org. Uh, I posted on Reddit at r slash Salt Lake City, uh, which is the Salt Lake City subreddit. And it's, there's um, you know, 6,200 readers there, which is pretty goodly goodly chunk of people um you know i put it out on i put it out on twitter uh we have a very active political community on twitter and we even have a a bot that will retweet things automatically if they have the ut poll hashtag that helps get things Mm -hmm. out in front of a much wider audience um you know so there's if you know how to use these ways to make ripples to get that information in front of a larger audience, you know it's easy to mo- to mobilize a few hundred people on a few days' notice to get them to, you know, take those actions. Okay. Huh. Interesting indeed. I'm just kind of, you know, at awe of this whole thing and how this has all come together. We've got about uh, just a little under five minutes left. What are, um, I say, your two, three top uh, tips for community folks, not just in Utah, but anywhere, to fight a bill like this? How do you get it done? How do you mobilize and, and get on the horn? You need to play the lobbyist game as well as or better than the lobbyist. Uh, you need to know your legislators. You should... Go to their town hall meetings. You should contact them when you have a concern. Uh, sometimes they're willing to meet with you one-on-one. I've had legislators come to my home to talk about issues with me. These, and building those kinds of relationships with them is how you get things done. 
Um, you don't even have to agree with them most of the time. If you can just have, you know, that open dialogue and they know who you are, that's, that is a big step forward. Um, because really that's the game of politics is it's about relationships. And if you never contact your legislators and you never polit- you know, participate politically and then all of a sudden you're coming in saying, I want this, well, they look at you and go, well, I don't know you from Adam's cat. And <laughs> you, can't, you can't get in that situation because I can guarantee you if CenturyLink's lobbyist Eric Isom walks into a committee room Every legislator knows who he is. Right. You need to have that kind of notoriety. You need to be like that, so that people can, you know, people can know. Hey, I know who this guy is. Maybe I should listen to him. Right. So it's really, that's all it takes. You need to show up. The reason that the incumbents win so often is because they show up. Right, and it's the. Uh... Who was somebody said you know the the the, the key is, is showing up. I mean that's basically how you win these things. And uh, and I would you know I would look to North Carolina because for the four years that they withstood the 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 lobbying might of Time Warner, it really was about showing up. And those folks got mighty good at mobilizing folks to show up and put all kinds of pressure uh, on on the legislature. And I think that that's got to be the word going forward because, again, if you look at the news today and you look at what's going on with Time Warner and, and, and Comcast, you know, the only, the only shot, real strong shot that seems to be of left to uh, consumers and local business is through these community networks, you know, community solutions that, that counter the monopoly or the duopoly. But in order to get there, uh, you're going to have to be willing to make those uh, efforts to show up because what's happening in Utah and Kansas is not one or two off situations. And yes, only 19 states have bad laws, but they're the rest of the states, and they're going to be targets too at some point. And we've got about a minute. Uh, any any last word? Any last word for our for our audience? Really, communities are the only ones that are solving problems these days. Um, Federal government is too bogged down in lobbying and in action to fix almost anything these days. Uh, state governments have, are starting to rapidly follow suit, and you know the best chance you've got is to have your city be the one that takes the charge in solving problems. They are the little laboratories where solutions come from, and you've got to make sure that they have the freedom to do that kind of experimentation and figure out what works. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that puts a good cap on this particular discussion. Uh, Jesse, I want to thank you for being here with us today. Um, you know, I and our listeners, and, and I'm sure the folks in Utah appreciate all the hard work that you and your compatriots are doing to, to, to kill Bill 60. <laughs> that should probably be the hashtag. But, you know, let's, let's get this done. Uh, good luck tomorrow. Uh, I will be following, as will a number of other folks. Uh, this time, we hopefully will be able to declare true victory, um, and this zombie bill will be dead, and that's that. And we move on to other stuff. So, I hope so. I, there are other things I would rather be doing. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. Um, and thank you to our audience for being here. Uh, it's been a good uh, turnout for this show. Uh, stay active, stay engaged, show up. Let's.
battle. We'll talk to you again soon. Take care and have a great day. Thanks, you too.